everybody, welcome to Literary Disco on Lit Hub Radio, episode 154, The Waverly Gallery. On today's episode, we read and discuss Kenneth Lonergan's play, The Waverly Gallery, which was first produced in 1999, was a finalist for the 2001 Pulitzer Prize, and in late 2018 had a Broadway revival that resulted in two Tony nominations. This is Literary Disco, the last book club you'll ever need, where Todd, Julia, and Ryder, three old friends who love to read, debate, and sometimes even agree. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me, as always, our novelist and critic Todd Goldberg and essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel. Hi, guys. Hi. Hey. Hey. Big week for everybody here in the literary disco world. Big week. Okay. Great. It's, it's always a big week, kind of, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, Here's what has happened to me this week. I finished my book yesterday. Yay! Woo-hoo. Feel pretty good about that. Stayed up and watched uh, another seven hours of uh, Unbelievable afterwards. <laughs> Have you guys watched the show Unbelievable? Todd, no, you watch a lot of it. TV. There's no possible way I can answer every single week. Dude. Yes, I watch the Unbelievable watch. is so good. It's based on a ProPublica article about... A horrible miscarriage of justice. A young woman in um, the Pacific Northwest was raped, and the cops essentially said she made up the story. And then, of course, she hadn't. And then this rapist went on to become this profound serial rapist across, essentially, the American West. Sounds like a blast. (laughs) Super uplifting. (laughs) The show is amazing. Oh, my God. You guys have to watch the show. I won't spoil it for anyone. But anyway. What is it on? It's on Netflix. Okay. Yeah, Netflix so told I, me to watch that, and I almost obeyed yesterday. Oh, God. <laughs> so Wendy put it on on like two nights ago, and I was like, I don't want to watch this. And then she promptly fell asleep like like nine minutes in, and then six hours later, I was like reading the ProPublica article. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was writing personal essays. <laughs> I had a whole, I was tweeting. Oh, God. Uh, But anyway, so I finished my book. Um, I feel pretty good about that. I like finishing books. Because it always feels like when you're in the middle of writing a book that you're never going to finish. And I finished. So that made me happy. And then Ryder. Ryder is, at the recording of this episode, is 12 days and three and a half hours. Uh, from the launch, so his, <laughs> the launch of his play. Which means actually that we have preview performances before that. So we're, yeah, we're, we're in the thick of it. How's the anxiety? How's that? Um, you know, I'm, I'm learning to deal with the anxiety. I'm feeling, I, I, like, like I said earlier to you, Todd, when we first started talking, I, um, I, you know, this, this is my, my dreams coming true right now. <laughs> Uh, in so many ways, you know, I'm on, in addition to the play, I am on deadline with my brother for a studio screenplay that we have to deliver <laughs> in three weeks, four weeks. Oh, oh, four, so right. me, so my days right now are waking up with my son when he wakes up at 630 every damn morning, hanging out with him for a couple hours, taking him to school and then rushing home to furiously write all day, forget to eat stuff myself with some last minute food, go back to writing, then go to rehearsals from six o'clock till, well, they're scheduled till 10, but we're usually there till about 11. Then I come home, do rewrites on the play until one or two in the morning and get those pages out to the actors, 
and then start it all over again the next oh, day. Man. Um, wow. But yeah, like I said, my dreams are coming true. You know, I'm writing a studio movie and my play that is like, you know, the thing I'm most proud of and most excited about in life is getting produced. And the actors are incredible. Our director is amazing. But, you know, it is theater. So everything's always falling apart. And we are way behind. We have 22 scene changes that are incredibly complicated um, because of course I wrote That's a complicated psychotic. play <laughs> every in between each in between each scene I also wrote video sequences that are found footage video sequences oh, that span everything from oh, a mock TMZ news report to a, a serial commercial from the early 90s and I took on directing all of those so I have we shot those last week and you know, just, it's just, it's a nightmare, but now, it's great. <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to spoil the discussion of the play we're going to talk about here in just yep. a second, but this play that we just read Waverly gallery, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer prize. And apparently was up for two Tonys this last time. It has four sets. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot. Yeah, that's, that's a smart a lot way to of the play. plays I've seen. <laughs> yeah. It's got four sets, but there it's really just two sets as far as I can tell. Yeah. yeah. And uh, let's say I'm already writing my next play actors. and it is one act, three scenes, <laughs> one set. So I am I am learning my lesson right now. Uh, but, you know, I, I, yeah, I was super ambitious. I sort of poured everything into this. And so I got to see it through. Um, and, but, yeah, I've already I've already learned many the many mistakes I, I made. You know, it, it's it's funny because I started in theater as an actor and I've always loved playwriting and loved writing scenes and and. And so much of learning how to be a screenwriter, which I've dedicated the last, you know, decade or 12 years to, is is sort of fighting against playwriting tendencies right. to not do everything in dialogue, to not just have character shifts and, you know, subtle storylines, but instead to, you know, maximize conflict, maximize spectacle, to, uh, you know, keep scenes propulsive and not rely on on dialogue for indicating things, but to, to show, don't tell, you know, all these things that as a playwright, I just, you can sort of relax into. And um, of course I ended up writing a play that still has so many movie things to it, uh, which I'm realizing now. Um, so yes, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's all fun. It's all good. And like, like I said, this is exactly what I've always wanted to be happening in my life. So I really can't complain, uh, but I am exhausted. And it's wow. going to happen in 290 hours yeah. and Thanks. 26 minutes. Yeah. But you know what's, what's also so weird is that, you know, obviously besides rewriting, like I, I'm nervous and I'm anxious, but it, like come opening night, there's nothing I can do. Yeah. Right. Like, I just get to sit back and watch it happen. And so in some ways that's kind of a relief, but in other ways, because I'm such a control freak, I just, I have to keep telling myself, it's not your responsibility. Just relax you don't have to memorize all the lines you don't have to you know there's nothing i can be doing during the right. day i can't be practicing my what like i got nothing except rewrites and cuts and trying to you know accommodate actors schedules with our rehearsals it's like there's just not much else i can do so so will you be rewriting the play though in between performances or once you're once you have i wouldn't be surprised don't do i wouldn't that. be surprised don't do that <laughs> this is part of the point okay so Obviously, while you guys are doing your amazing things, I'm just running a tiny improv theater. But like part of the point of the art of these forms is to let go and watch your creation right. do its thing. So 
Yeah. You know, enjoy that part of it too. Let it be somebody else's yeah. baby, the actor's baby, the director's baby. Totally. I, um, there's this, I, you know, Bill Daniels who played, uh, Mr. Feeney on Boy Meets World. Uh, I've been spending some time with him lately because we've been doing these conventions and he's 93 now. Oh my it's gosh. just an amazing, you know, just a wealth of stories and, uh, He's, he's incredible. And, uh, and his wife, Bonnie is amazing too. And, and so I've been asking him about like his old theater days, uh, just cause I'm in it right now. And I'm so curious about, cause you I mean, this is a man who did 1776 on Broadway mm. and, um, a thousand clowns. And, uh, and then I was asking him about Edward Albee's the zoo story. Cause he was in the original cast of the Broadway production wow. of zoo story. And he was, you know, and the best part of all of his stories Everybody was drinking. Like he didn't drink, <laughs> but like all these amazing actors. Like I'd be like, "So, what was Jason Robards like?" He's like big drunk, big drunk. <laughs> like, every time. And they're amazing stories. Uh, but but the story he's told me about the zoo story is that you know Edward Albee was so uh, he thought it was such an important play, and opening night. The first line, which is, if you guys have ever read or know anything, it's, you know, I've been to the zoo. It's a very mm -hmm. famous, like, opening line. And um, it's only two characters on a bench. And uh, Bill was playing the sort of straight man who's on the bench, like, reading the newspaper when the sort of more manic, you know, crazy character comes up and says, I've been to the zoo. And Bill says that the for opening night, he just reacted. Like, he just sort of popped his head up with this blank look out towards the audience and it just killed. The audience just immediately laughed. And Edward Albee freaked out. He was like, what's wrong? Why are they laughing? You know, mm. and, it, and he was like, this is the point. You know, we were getting a reaction. And, but I, I, I was thinking about that story, you know, when we were doing our first run through last night, because yeah, it's like, that's the feeling I keep having of like, wait a minute, they're not laughing here or, or they're suddenly laughing at that. That's not funny. And it's right. like just letting go of this control and realizing that it's, it's out in the world now. And it's, it's embodied by these actors and, 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 and experienced by these, this audience also embodied by the audience. And it becomes this like living, breathing thing between the actors and the audience. And yeah. as a playwright, I just have to get out of the way. Um, so I'm I'm super excited. I can't wait to to really experience that. You know what? It must be interesting for you with him. I mean, it must be strange to have an adult relationship with a person who you had a childhood relationship with, where yeah. it then changes, and you can like. It's not just that he was in all these things. Bill Daniels is a legend of yeah. character acting. Like he was, yeah. he was he he made Saint Elsewhere into the thing Saint Elsewhere was. Yeah. yeah. Um, but to be able to pick his brain now at 38 or however old you are versus when you were 13 must be a really unusual and enlightening experience. It's amazing. It's it's honestly like been one of my favorite things of this past year. And it's really, here's the funny thing. It's really his wife, Bonnie, um, because, you know, Bill, Bill is the consummate professional. As mm. an actor, this is a man who who shows up an hour early before his call. It has memorized every word is always it just he's so and as a kid you know we were wrecks we were right. like you know <laughs> joking and screwing around and so he always felt like this sort of like kind of scary kind of grumpy you know like guy over there who we're like a little intimidated by um but 
Bonnie, his wife, is the exact opposite. She is just this gregarious, outgoing, loves to tell stories, loves to talk. And, um, you know, she actually guest starred on Boy Meets World a few times. She played his who, uh, a dean who eventually married him in the show, I think, mm-hmm. or they dated on the show. I can't even remember my own TV show. But they... <laughs> <laughs> one like that was like season five or six and it was hysterical because the second she came on set uh within like two days of working with both of them we all felt like we knew bill a million times better than the previous yeah. five or six years right. and it was like it's just and and it's the same way with these conventions because they travel together and so she's with him and she just loves to open up and tell us stories and and then as a consequence he opens up and um yeah, I think we're going to I think we're actually going to start recording some conversations cuz oh, Will Fredell and I That's are we've been talking about just grabbing a camera, going over to their house and sitting down with the two of them and being like tell us stories like cuz I mean we already know some of them but and we know that there's more and yeah. it's like, you know, this is this is like this is Hollywood royalty. Um he said and, and, and good actors too. He Both said of them plastics. are like, <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. I mean, he was the voice of Kit in Knight Rider. Like, the ma- <laughs> it's just an amazing life. I mean, but the other weird thing, of course, is that you then were in the Graduate, the play, and he had been yeah. the father in the Graduate, the movie yeah. in 1968 or whatever it was. Yeah. Um, what a strange. I mean, what a what a fucking gift, you know, like yeah. to be able to sit and talk to him. But it's just such an unusual experience, I think, to to have a relationship. A second relationship with someone that you've known. You know? Yeah, I agree, man. It's really, really satisfying. Yeah, it's, that's cool. It's, yeah, it's really nice. You guys should um, record those stories, damn. That would yes, be. Yes, you totally should. Yeah. That Your fans a, are going a... crazy on the other end of this conversation right now. You have to do it. <laughs> I'm, I'm going crazy. I think it's so cool. I mean, we forget sometimes like these sort of great character actors that are the fabric of American cinema mm-hmm. and American stage and American TV. Mm-hmm. Um, like he had a footprint in the major art of three different mediums over the course of his career. Yeah. That's yep. fucking crazy. It's so crazy. It's cra- like if he had just if he had just been in the graduate, that would have been enough, right? <laughs> right. And that was that was like fifty years ago, and he's yeah. still out there doing it. It's, well, it's, what's so crazy is that you know, to him, uh, for him now, walking down the street, it's Mister Feeney, right? Which is like uh, you know this late career sitcom that he did. Yeah. This sort of like you know, and he tried to get off the show the first episode. He was like, "This is shit." I'm out of here. And the producer, you know, Michael Jacobs was like, no, 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 give me tonight. Give me tonight to rewrite the script and I'm going to make it, I'm going to make it right by you. And he did. And Bill mm-hmm. stayed for the rest of the show and was happy. And like, but it, you know, he just, and, but it's so funny that that's come to define him in his later years. Yeah. But from his perspective, you know, in the span of, you know, he was a child actor. So he's been, he's, oh been, my God. he's been acting since he was like five years old. So wow. for him, like, you know, Boy Meets World is just a blip, but uh, here it is like still defining him 20 years later because it's kind of his, you know, the last major project that he was a part of. But like um, his, his role on St. Elsewhere revolutionized the way doctors are portrayed in television. Yeah. Like, the, I mean, it's true. You know, and that's that's just like that in and of itself is an amazing thing. How cool. Yeah, you, you should absolutely do a podcast yeah, separate a podcast. from this one <laughs> where it's just stories with Bill. Yeah. And, totally. and you just do 10 of them. And then it ends uh, with you guys tearfully remembering kit or whatever <laughs> oh, that's that is so cool that is yeah. so cool awesome. all right uh on to our uh, current podcast right 
and uh, what we're doing here. Uh, so, uh, Kenneth Lonergan, uh, he's probably best known in the world for uh, the movies that he's written and directed. In 2000, he wrote and directed You Can Count On Me, which introduced Mark Ruffalo to the world. Love that uh, movie. His film Margaret was released in 2011, and then Manchester by the Sea was nominated for six Academy Awards in 2016. But he is also a renowned playwright. His first play, This Is Our Youth, premiered in 1996, and his second play, produced in 1999, was the Waverly Gallery, which we're talking about today. Um, so just a, a, a rundown of the basic plot, what, what little of it there is, actually. Mm -hmm. The Waverly Gallery uh, takes place in this uh, small art gallery in Greenwich Village, which is run by Gladys, uh, a woman in her 80s. And the play is presented to the audience in monologue asides uh, by Daniel, Gladys's 20-something-year-old grandson who, along with his mom and his stepfather and a visiting artist from out of town who has taken up shop in the gallery and is actually living there, um, have to contend with Gladys's hearing loss and her increasing dementia. What'd you guys yeah. think? Well, <laughs> well, I'll go first. I know okay. uh, this. I know we're going to differ. Okay, so... I really love this. I love reading plays. We don't do it enough. And this just hit me emotionally on many levels, which is exactly what a play is supposed to do, right? You're supposed to go into a theater and have one singular, very present emotional experience. So, um, I mean, honestly, it was jarring because I have my, my best friend from college. Her dad owned a small art gallery exactly like this basically a block away from where this is supposed to be. Um, and so like, I know this place, I know these people and I know some of these conversations and the theme of someone suffering from dementia and a family kind of revolving around those identical conversations and reacting to them. It's perfect for a play. It's made for a play. It couldn't, I don't think mm -hmm. it could be done in any other medium. So mm -hmm. to me, it feels like, an actor's play where you have this one character who's, you know, she's descending, but she's also turning like a clock through the same conversations and the other actors get to react differently each and every time she brings up mm -hmm. the dog or whatever, all these other details that we have. So man, every time I read a play, I'm like, I want to see it, but there's actually something very pure about just reading the dialogue and having these emotions exist only in the space of your own head. So I loved it. I I really loved it. And it made me feel like one continuous, very sad emotional experience. Yes. <laughs> Which is exactly what it's supposed to do. So I yeah. success yeah. Right. in I'm my team book. Julia. I'm team Julia. Todd, go. go. Uh, I hate reading plays. Oh, really? <laughs> what about, I mean, I thought you really enjoyed the Sam Shepard. The last play we did was yeah, the Sam Shepard. I, uh, I, 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 well, okay, let me back up. Sometimes I like reading plays. Oh my God, this is an in-depth review But most here. of the time, most of the time I don't. <laughs> but this play itself is hard because um, it requires you to actually read two conversations at once most of the time. So there are yeah. parallel conversations that are supposed to be spoken at the same time, 
throughout a great majority of the play. And on the stage, it would be awesome. When you're reading it, you lose that part of it because you can't, in fact, read both things at the same time. You have to read them separately. And so since the majority, I I would say like 50% of the play is supposed to be people talking over each other, you lose that thing. And it just becomes like I I have a really hard time in a play descending into the make-believe world. I'm always reading a play when I'm reading a play. Um, Now, that being said, uh, you know, my mom um, descended into dementia when she was living in the house next door to mine. And I had to take care of her. And I had to fight with my siblings about her care. And uh, my grandmother lived two doors down as this was all happening as she was descending into dementia all at the same time. Um, And so... Well, I didn't necessarily fall into the make-believe world. I did, in fact, think, ah, fuck, this is a very similar experience <laughs> to one that I've had before. Um, I mean, it's it's extraordinarily well-written. The dialogue is fantastic. The emotions are present and interesting. I'd like to see the play. Reading it, for me, was an academic pursuit. Right. How do you feel about Shakespeare, reading Shakespeare? Um... You know, it took me a long time um, because, of, of course, at first when you read Shakespeare, you don't understand what you're reading. Oh, yeah. It's just baffling. It's baffling. And then I had a class that essentially taught me how to read Shakespeare when I was in college and then I could read it. And it was um, that reads more like a novel because, of course, the dialogue isn't realistic. You know, the right. dialogue is novelistic. Um, here, the dialogue is all extraordinarily realistic. And so when there's all this repetition, um it, it's doing what's supposed to be doing, which is grating on your nerves and and <laughs> right. making you feel like, oh, God, I'm stuck in a broken record, which is what it's like living with someone with um, with dementia uh, or Alzheimer's or whatever the condition might be. Um, but like, you know, that Sam Shepard play we read and then we also read um, Cock, right? Is that what it was called? Yeah. Yeah. That was that a was, great play. That was a great play. Um I don't know. This one was this one was a little bit more challenging dramatically because I also knew what was going to happen. Like there's there's one thing that can happen in this. I mean, there's a great line in a, in the Jason Isbell song Elephant uh, where he says nobody dies with any dignity. And I was prepared for that. And it's, it came true in a lot of ways. Like this, this, this play is, is intentionally plotless mm-hmm. and it, and and it's a weird realization, you know, because I mean, I Lonergan's other plays, Lobby Hero and This Is Our Youth, you know, there, there's much more sort of excitement and, and, mm. and fireworks. And so and when I realized like, oh, this is really just going to be watching the passing of this woman's life, uh, I was kind of at first annoyed or like, oh, is that all this is going to be? And then I had the second like immediate realization of that's that's pretty beautiful. I mean, right. that's that's centering the the character that I'm most sort of dismissive of, uh, you know, and and in a way, our whole culture is is very dismissive of old people and dementia. Yeah. And it's like it's a problem that a family has to deal with, but somebody has to deal with it. Somebody has right. to take care of somebody with dementia. And so realizing that that's all the play was going to do is force me to reconcile with this old person who's frankly annoying at times and funny at times you're laughing Mm -hmm. at her at her expense and like that that like the way that that turned on me just 
chilled me, like mm-hmm. chilled me to the core. And like when I read the final lines of the play, I started bawling. It was oh, like, holy really, shit. The final like, lines are really powerful for sure. Yeah. Because yeah. it's just, it's just, that's it. That's what happens. It's mm-hmm. just, you got to deal with it. And there's not going to be any, no one's going to come in and save the gallery. No one's going to save her dementia. You know, you just, you can't. It's, and I, oh my God, like I, to, to, to take that on as a play is something to put up on its feet and to make people sit through and to do it well. And and, I mean, I don't know, like, I I think that's incredible. That that alone just blew me away. Um, I agree about the dual dialogue thing though, man. It bothers me. Oh, no way. Oh, I love it. It's It's really hard to read though. No. Okay. So I don't know. This is my brain or something, but when I read a play, it kind of goes into a different space in my brain. And this is from reading so much Shakespeare where it's more like I'm listening to it. Like it immediately goes into an auditory thing. It's I'm not yeah. like thinking about it. Just the words are going in as if I'm imagining listening to it. Um, yeah. And like darting your eyes around between the paragraphs. Like I do kind of read them at the same time and read like chunks of each paragraph at the same time and like go back and read what they actually say. Um, it's kind of like looking at a comic strip that the order isn't, you know, clear on purpose and you get to like, oh, like decide yeah. how you um, interpret it. And of course, if you were listening to it and, and this is how you have to go into it, if you were watching the play, I mean, you wouldn't hear, you would, be picking up more on one half than the other nobody's like getting a hundred percent so i love like going into the thicket and just picking out whatever from it um as if i was watching it and then getting to go back and really see what they're saying um i think that's fun it's a unusual experience a lot of playwrights now are doing the slash thing have you seen that Mm -hmm. yeah like they they indicate with a, a slash where the next line begins to mm-hmm. cut that person off. I find that visually a lot easier to read. And I wonder if he actually wrote it, you know, in the, for the actors in that form or something, or if he just actually, you know, formatted the script, the, the performance script um, in the same way it is in, in this published version, because I, I, I like the slash, I think as a reading experience, I'm, I'm still kind of mixed. Like I didn't do any of that in my play. And I've actually been discussing it with like the actors during our rehearsals. Like, do you guys like this? Is this the way we should all be writing our plays now? Because like screenplays never do that. Right. You can do you can do dual dialogue in screenplays, but it's pretty rare. Although I just read the script for Midsommar, uh, which I haven't seen yet, but reading the script, he does so much dual dialogue and it's clearly because he's trying to cram a three-hour movie into a you know 110-page <laughs> script. It's like such a cheat. He's like reformatted the whole script. But- um, I'm gonna use eight-point font. <laughs> yeah, no, it's classic. There's there's so many tricks you can do with screenplay. But um, but yeah, like dual dialogue is used pretty sparingly in screenplays, but on plays, it's become such a, a, a sort of accepted stand, you know, kind of the, the way to write them. Well, and you know, the, the other challenge for me is that I when I read a play, I'm like, Oh, I'm reading a blueprint for an actor. I'm not reading something that's written for me. Hmm. And I find that more technical, you know? Um, like, Julia, you're capable of having sort of the the play exist in your mind. All that happens for me when I read a play is I, like, whatever my aphasia is, is I'm just seeing the words circling around in my mind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I, I don't get a sense of the person 
in it. And I think like True West or something or Sam Sam Shepard stuff in general, I get a better picture because I've seen a lot of them, you know? So Mm -hmm. I sort of know his aesthetic. The same way with like reading Thurber or something. Like I saw a shit ton of Thurber when I was young. And so everything in my mind, if I read Thurber, looks like noises off. You know, it's like 85 fucking people running around in circles or whatever, you know? (laughs) Um, But this, I just, it just felt like people sitting in a room talking about a thing I knew how how it was going to end, basically. So, yeah. It's like, oh, God, this is going to deteriorate badly. I mean, it's not about plot it's about character so yeah the actor and i mean i have i'm most comfortable in the theater world when you guys are talking about tv and movies i'm like into it like a consumer but the theater world i'm into like that's my world so right you know it's fun to investigate like what does this exact line say about this character i mean it is completely mm-hmm. character based you cannot rely on you know stage directions or setting or whatever and of course it's interesting because when people go and see plays especially big productions or regional productions there's the productions are amazing so they'll talk about the sets and the lighting which is such an incredible art form but like the play has to stand on the dialogue or else right right fuck that play uh (laughs) (laughs) um and it's so neat to see it stripped down to its purest vision of what it is and to imagine that anyone can construct the characters and then therefore flesh out the whole world. But it has to be based around lines like like a bunch of dorks are sitting around looking at this play saying like, okay, I'll give them a call. I hope that's not going to be a problem. And they're going to talk about that sentence for like an hour and that sentence will inform the costume and whatever everything so yeah it's a question of like what the words that we say as human beings what do they create in the world like we're responsible for what we say in the way that we relate to each other and treat each other and listen to each other or in the case of this dual dialogue don't listen to each other um right and the impact that that has on our family our friends and our homes you know right um it's cool. And I think it's really important. I think these plays are important because it's so easy to get caught up in everything else about uh, theatrical you know, production. You know what's interesting, though, about Lonergan as a writer himself is is when you read this play, like a movie like Manchester by the Sea makes a lot of sense. Like, I mean, yeah. the, because everything that happens in Manchester by the Sea that is a big part of the plot actually happens off stage um and it's mostly just people going around having conversations about the, the horrible things that have already happened and i i loved manchester by the sea i was heartbroken by that movie i i watched it on a plane and was sobbing and someone reached over and said are you okay and i was like it's just casey molest <laughs> people but he's really great in this movie um, it's a yeah i mean i think his movies are incredible and yeah he's obsessed i mean loss right like yeah. all of his stuff is just infused Profound with loss, loss. Yeah. and it's like it's all it's 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 unflinching it's like you have to you take this deep dive into sadness, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I find it incredibly cathartic and well done. I mean, 
you can count on me. You oh, know, it's like great. the whole, it's very similar to Manchester by the mm-hmm. Sea, where it's like the 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 tragedy of this the parents having died in this car crash is so buried, and all you're watching is like uh, you know brother be kind of a screw up and his overbearing sister screw up in her life and like their relationship trying and then at the end like when they just have to say remember what we said to each other when we were kids and you like know it's the title and you don't even have to hear it and you're i'm just like i mean i'm getting teared up just thinking about it it's like that is writing you know he's so and like i don't know if people really are making movies with that level of character depth and sophistication he's always you guys have to see Margaret. If you haven't seen Margaret, Margaret has become my favorite movie. I think of all time right now. I, I, Margaret, I can't stop I watching. I've never it. heard of it. Well, it's a it was a disaster. Like the production was a disaster, and Lonergan like it ended up lots of lawsuits. It didn't get released for like four years after it was finished. But you can find it on Amazon. There's an extended version of it that because it got recut a million times and. The one that got that did end up getting released is shorter than what Lonergan wanted. So the extended version is now available on Amazon, and I highly recommend it if anybody liked Manchester by the Sea. Mm. Or I watched I, I ever since I've seen this movie, I watch it every year now. Like I, I reach this wow. point where I'm like, I need to see Margaret again because I'm still not sure what it's about. And every time I watch <laughs> it, it's like my 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 heart and my brain just start exploding. And it's it's I, I think it's like the 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 best. Uh, post 9-11 film about 9-11 and Mm. about um, you know I guess what now would be called millennials but when they were making in 2008 didn't really quite have a a name yet but um, I think it's a masterpiece and like because of that movie and because of um, uh, just some things I've read about him Lonergan is like my hero right now obviously playwright filmmaker you know what's that sounds amazing I want to read it but or watch it but what's amazing to me that's striking me as you're saying it is, you know, plays can exist as soon as anyone wants to breathe life into them. You know, like once right. they get published, you know, they can't be ruined by exactly what you're describing, which is lawsuits and the whole machine falling apart. <laughs> right. You know, the right. fact that anyone can pick up the Waverly Gallery and like buy the rights and Put on a production. We could do a production right now. We yeah. Should we do it? I'm Let's ready. just do it. All right. I'm playing. <laughs> I'd like to be Dawn. All right. You're Dawn. <laughs> I don't think the dog ever yeah, comes no. on stage. Uh, but it's like, it's for people. It's like clothes right. to try on. It's people mm-hmm. to embody. I mean, Greg and I saw yeah. Hades Town yesterday. Um, and like 10 minutes in, he was like, God, I hope no high school ever does this because the singing parts are so hard. And I was like, you know, every high school is going to do this. Um, like I can't believe that, that high schools do Les Miserables. Like that blows my mind. Oh, like, yeah. But they don't do a full just, production of it, do they? They sure fucking there do. Must be oh, yeah, bird. they do. <laughs> oh, so yeah. cool. You guys, you got to go to a, a rich suburban high school like I went to in New Jersey. And it is like right. on. Who's got yeah. the most talented kids? Oh, you know, Palm Springs High School. Palm Springs High School does full productions because they have this um, this stage that essentially the Palm Springs International Film Festival. Oh, you saw that stage, writer, when we did that talk there. They've yeah. got this. They've got this auditorium that's got a Broadway sized stage. It's giant. It's, it's so huge. Nice. It's amazing. And so they do full like. Five week long productions yeah, of major American musicals, in next, uh, <laughs> yeah. Angels in America. Before you know it, yeah, for sure. <laughs> oh you God. know the thing about this play, though, that I should say is that I mean, it's it's 
it's horribly accurate um, to the emotions that you have when you're dealing with someone that you love um, who has dementia because it's it's frustrating. You know, there, there's a there's a part of the illness that um, like you're sad and you're upset and you're worried about this person that you love, but it doesn't stop you from being annoyed. You know, right. <laughs> it doesn't stop you from being frustrated by something, and then it doesn't stop you from the guilt associated with this with the anger or frustration that you have with that person and you see that throughout this play is these people battling you know these two poles of of sadness and love mixed with frustration and anger um and also the realization like what what am i angry at i'm, I'm angry because i'm annoyed that someone keeps saying the same thing it's like having someone tap you over and over again and well we should also talk about how the play by the end really expands outward thematically when you start learning more about Gladys's life. Yeah. Right. And 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 of course the fact that there's this art gallery, right? Like she's this purveyor of art. You know, she had ambitions at some point, obviously, to support art. And and you hear about all these great parties she used to throw and how she used to always entertain. And then it goes all the way back to World War II and right. you know, escaping Nazi Germany. And it's like this, there's this sense of okay we're annoyed by this person, but this person also, you know, we're losing an entire life, a right. history and we're losing, yeah. we're losing touch with, you know, she keeps freaking out about how the neighborhood's getting crowded. The neighborhood's changing. And it's like, yeah, like that's what every generation goes through. And, and by the time you, you want to hold on to it, it's probably already too late that the, the humans, the brains and the human experiences, they can't, they can't hold it together anymore. Mm -hmm. And, Man, like that, that really just struck me because it's like, you know, I want to call my parents, <laughs> you know, yeah. like I want to, I want to, I need to start writing stuff down. I want to go interview Bill Daniels. Yeah, like you should. <laughs> you have to keep this stuff because like there's value in that, you know, especially when I look around at the world with the state we're in right now and like all this anxiety and, and, and fear that we're feeling right now, that is where we could be turning in so many ways. Um, and it's just so interesting because, you know, I'm, 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 I, I've always been such a, a liberal and such a progressive. And so a lot of that is is anti-conservatism, which in my mind somehow also translate to conservative people in like in the sense that they're trying to preserve culture or conserve things. And now that I'm getting older, I'm realizing that's not necessarily a problem. You know, like that's actually that can be really great for a society. That's actually really important to conserve certain ideas or ideals and to pass them along and to share them and so, you know, whatever. It was, the, it was the perfect play to be reading on the eve of my 40th birthday. Well, and... <laughs> <laughs> life crisis. Like three months. Life crisis yeah. train coming. Choo-choo. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I think there's a great example of that. And, and it's so emotional. Obviously very striking where earlier in the play, the whole family's like, oh, we're not a religious family. We don't care about religion. Whatever. We don't care. Uh, we've all agreed as a family this doesn't matter to us. And then later in the play, um, Gladys, the main character, is she's really going in and out of different times and starts talking about the Holocaust. And it's just like opening up this piece of herself that they had never known before. And, you know, of course, dementia and Alzheimer's, terrible, emotionally, horribly stressful thing. But um, there's also these glimpses into the past that you would never otherwise get to see. 
um, where yeah. someone's truly transported to the person they used to be or truly thinks that they're speaking to someone else. I mean, that is, it's so beautiful in its horror, <laughs> you know, right. that you're yeah. kind of getting a portal into their other life or their other mind. Um, I mean, and it's, it's, it's this strange notion of the human mind, right? Like, mm -hmm. oh, gosh, everything is still there. It's yes. just, it's yes. like, it's just, there's so much shit on top of it. It's like you're going through a file cabinet and you're like, oh, God, 1943. Here you go. Let's <laughs> let's take a look at that. But, you know, it's a funny thing about um, about American Jews. Um, it's something I think about a lot in the last three years um, is that secular American Jews are not terribly religious until they become threatened. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> and then... <laughs> Lo and behold, you feel pretty Jewish, you know? Like, I, yeah. I've never felt more Jewish in my life than since they started killing Jews in America. Um, and never felt more emboldened to say I'm a Jew than I have in the last three years. Not that it's difficult for people to figure it out. I mean, my last name is Goldberg. But it's an, it's an interesting thing about, about being a Jew is that you, you cannot be religious and still have uh, a really deep connection to your faith. Um, because of the the cultural ties to it, yeah. Um, and so when that showed up at the end there, like that was it was a very um, I was reminded of my grandmother. So my grandmother lived till she was ninety six, I think, and like the last ten years that she was alive, she existed in about ten different planes at once. Um, you know, sometimes it was World War Two, sometimes it was fifteen minutes ago, sometimes it was nineteen twenty five. And you never quite knew um, what it was going to be. But the entire time, she's obsessed with whether or not you'd had enough to eat. <laughs> <laughs> I love Life the cooking thing in the play. Yeah. <laughs> Where it's like, do you know how to cook? Do you know yeah. how to cook? <laughs> Just keeps asking. And it's, and it's like annoying. And then it's funny. And then it's kind of annoying again. And then it's just sad. Yeah. It's My so grandmother's was always, let me get you something to eat. And, you know, when she stopped being able to cook, um, that was like, that was the moment at which her autonomy totally disappeared and she lost almost any tether to reality when she stopped being able to cook. Um, because that was the one thing she was present in at any given time, mm -hmm. which is a weird thing, but it's also like a, it, you can sort of understand it as a tether towards your entire life. I cook this for this person. I cook that for that person. This is my husband's favorite food. This is my grandchild's favorite food. This is my, you know, whatever. There's that, um, there's that emotional bond to food and to feeding other people that makes a lot of sense. And but particularly for some reason with Jews, we're obsessed with food. Or as my lovely wife often says, when I'm upset about something and I'm going through the house eating every marshmallow, like, why don't you talk about what's wrong? <laughs> <laughs> Wendy's versus, the best. versus eating everything. I was like, I'd rather eat first and then talk about what's wrong. <laughs> yeah, well, no, it's also it's just routine, right? Like it's it's so um, like you, you hear about how people retire and then just fall apart. Yeah. You know, it's like they can't wait to retire, but you know, they hold on until their seventies and then they retire and their whole life falls apart. It's like, they don't, you know, you, you have structure, you have routine and you know, that that's real, mm -hmm. which tells me that when we're in our eighties, We'll still be doing literary disco, guys. <laughs> we have to keep it nine hundred and fifty-nine. Oh, we'll be way, we'll, we'll be in the thousands at that point, just to keep our our brains active. 
Yeah. Well, I read a lot, so that helps. Yeah. <laughs> Reading is good. Literary Disco is produced and edited by Justin Alvarez for Lit Hub Radio. You can reach out to us directly on Twitter at Literary Disco. Happy reading, everybody, and thanks for listening. Yeah.